Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Stacy Jacobson. Stacy's a senior vice president and director of the Wealth Strategies Group at Alliance Bernstein. She's also co-head of the Sports Media and Entertainment Group and a member of Family Engagement Services. Based in their Los Angeles office, Stacy works closely with high net worth families, family offices, and their professional advisors on family engagement and education and a variety of complex investment planning issues, including pre-transaction planning, multi-generational wealth transfer, philanthropy, and diversification planning for holders of concentrated portfolios. Thanks so much for joining us, Stacy. The subject of today's episode is the thin white duke himself, David Bowie. Bowie was an English singer, songwriter, and actor, a leading figure in the music industry. He's regarded as one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century. He was acclaimed by critics and musicians, particularly for his innovative work during the 70s. His career was marked by reinvention and visual presentation, and his music and stagecraft had a significant impact on popular music. During his lifetime, his record sales estimated at over 100 million records worldwide, which made him one of the best-selling artists of all time. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, and Rolling Stone named him among the greatest artists in history, and shortly after his death, the greatest rock star ever, full stop. And on a personal note, though I'm too young to have experienced Bowie's musical heyday, he was also the star of my favorite childhood movie, Labyrinth, an absolute must-watch, and in my opinion, the Academy should have created a new category that year, Best Performance by a Codpiece in a Children's Movie, to honor Bowie's indelible contribution to the film. On a more somber note, Bowie sadly passed after a long battle with cancer in 2016 at the age of 69. Thankfully, unlike most of the stars we discuss on this show, his affairs were relatively in order. He left the majority of his roughly $100 million estate at the time to his wife, supermodel Iman, son, director Duncan Jones, and then 16-year-old daughter, Alexandria Jones. He also made million-dollar requests to his longtime assistant and to his daughter's former nanny. In addition, Bowie's will contained directions that a funeral not be held for him and that he wished to be cremated in Bali and have his ashes scattered in accordance with Buddhist rituals. He was a Buddhist. He was ultimately cremated in Jersey, not exactly paradise, due to the logistical difficulties of doing so in Bali, but his ashes were then subsequently scattered there. That all said, the aspect of Bowie's estate that we're going to concentrate on today is something that was in the news far more recently, the sale of his music catalog. In January of this year, Bowie's estate announced that it had inked a deal with Warner Chapel Music, the publishing arm of Warner Music Group, to sell the singer's publishing catalog. The catalog included six decades of hits like Space Oddity, Changes, Life on Mars, and Ziggy Stardust, and sold for a reported $250 million. 
astute listeners will note that is much, much more than the $100 million at which his estate was initially valued. Interestingly, the sale also comes as part of a rush of similar deals. ZZ Top, Bruce Springsteen, and Bob Dylan, all still alive except for one background member of ZZ Top, all have sold their music catalogs to publishing groups in recent months. So Stacey, before we get into examining this trend a bit, let's start with a breakdown of the assets in question. How is planning for the sale of a musician's catalog different than planning for other, more traditional assets? Yeah, and that's a great way to start because the music catalog is a complex asset and certainly one of the more complex assets that I've seen um, in my time working with our high net worth clients. Now, look, there's a couple of things that I like to look at. Um, first, clearly will be the finances as that's a driving force behind the transaction. But more than any other asset, it's also important to look at the motivation of both the buyer and the seller. Right. And so when we think about that, let's first start with the artist. Right. So why is it that the artist wants to sell at this point in time? If it's because they need the money, probably not a good idea. Right. Because when you think about what the music catalog is, it is an annual income stream, which is almost like a forced savings. Right. You are, you're on a particular budget. Um, and then you also want to look at the motivation of the buyer. Why is it that they want this particular catalog? Is it something that um, they're adding to a diversified portfolio? How are they going to care for it? Right. It clearly is very emotional to the artist and something that is often a lifelong piece of work. And then when we look at the financial side of it, really what the trade-off is, is, as I just earlier said, is that you're looking at the after-tax value of an annual annuity stream coming in versus selling and now having a big pot of money. So it certainly takes a lot of discipline to not spend from that pot of money. And those are really some of the, the first factors that we'll take a look at as to whether or not um, an artist should sell their catalog or keep the annuity stream. And that is different than a more traditional asset. It's really interesting the way you describe it. It almost makes it sound uh, similar to a client winning the lottery and choose, having to choose whether to take the lump sum or the uh, annual payout. Yeah, right. Looking at the structure between the lump sum payout versus, uh, you know, sorry, looking at the structure of a uh, payout on an annual basis versus just receiving the lump sum is very similar. Although I think I'd argue that artists would not say it's anything like winning the lottery because it is often <laughs> a lifetime of work that is taken um, to the culmination of this. Yeah, but I guess uh, a more appropriate way to look at it is you're almost treating it like a fixed income product. Yeah, and we do do that, right? Sometimes it, it is helpful to think of the catalog as a bond, right? Mm -hmm. And the annual annuity stream is the income that they're receiving. Now, there is a difference, right? Because there's municipal bonds where that income stream may not be taxable to an individual, whereas the annuity stream is taxable at the highest ordinary income tax rates. Interesting. So, you know, one thing that we're noticing here is also unlike a municipal bond, you know, it seems like with a music catalog, there can be sort of wild fluctuations in the value, right? I mean, if we look at, say, Michael Jackson when he died and what his catalog was actually valued at at the time of his death versus then what it became after he died and then all of the wild accolades started coming in and everyone, you know, chose to sort of forget about his other, uh, let's call them foibles. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, that's, that's quite unlike the traditional fixed income product where it's, it's never going to go up a hundred times in value where a music, musician's catalog, like other pieces of art, definitely can. Right. So the stability of it is certainly different, but that actually brings me back to where I was saying that the buyer of the catalog is important to look at when an artist is looking to sell. 
um, because it's important that the catalog is appropriately cared for, that it's going to somebody who will want to promote the catalog and is capable of really taking care of the timeless songs such as Bowie's music catalog. So yeah, in addition to just the sort of monetary value and sort of care of a musician's catalog, um, what about questions about legacy and sort of, you know, other sort of you know, artistic questions? Where does that come into play? Yeah, right. So this is a lifetime work of, worth of work for a lot of the artists, and they want to make sure that the person that they're selling it to will take care of it. Right. So how will they promote their legacy and continue to move on through their music? So you see a lot of the, the big groups coming in to buy. And again, with Bowie and with uh, Warner Chapel Music, they have really said that they are standing ready to promote uh, his catalog and really take care of the timeless nature of the songs. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, anytime we start talking about the sale of music catalogs, and I know it's it's different uh, than the sort of likeness rights, but you know the, the Tupac hologram, I think, sort of looms large <laughs> over a lot of these discussions. Um, is that something that you think is in, that you find is in the mind of sort of more high-profile clients, where you know they don't want to be sort of this ghoul? Yeah, right. They um, there's just a lot going on in this industry right now, and I think that we are at you know one of the more compelling times in history for artists to begin to sell their catalogs um you know th- think about i think it was neil diamond he recently joined the ranks selling to universal music group that was reported in the end of february of this year and where it used to be that artists would hold on to their catalogs and that you know it was just a not not a popular transaction to sell now there's a lot of reasons, um, even besides the finances, why an artist may want to sell their catalog, right? Um, you know, I can go, certainly go ahead and go into some of those, but uh, a lot of it is simplification of the estate, right? The catalog is a really complex asset. And so for somebody who has managed it and held it for a long period of time to pass it on to heirs can often be a big burden. Um, so artists that are later in their life are starting to sell, liquidate, and simplify their estate. You know, it's part of the reason too is, um, I'd say the ta- potential for tax legislation change that we were, um, experiencing in 2021 was certainly another reason why artists started to sell their catalogs or look to do so, right? Because of that trade-off between Ordinary income tax rates on the annuity stream, which I've previously said is one of the more punitive taxes, versus a long-term capital gain when you sell the asset. Um, and what we are th- looking through in 2021 is the potential for that capital gain rate to now match that ordinary income rate. So it would really push out that break-even where an artist may think to um, hold on to the catalog versus sell. Interesting. So, I mean... As we've seen, I guess, the, that a lot of that uh, worry was, was focused on the Build Back Better Act and, and what that would exactly say, and, and that changed so much. And you know, a lot of our guests sort of had to basically clear their schedules in December because you know, they wouldn't have time, much time to, uh, if something happened, to you know, institute changes before year end. But you know, a lot of those changes didn't happen uh, in the Build Back Better Act. So um, do you think that this is going to maintain this, this trend will, will still continue to be popular or because the changes are still being discussed? There's just no sort of da- sort of Damocles, you know, hanging over people's heads. Um, do you think that's going to put a damper on these sort of transactions or, or is it is now like sort of the uh, the genie out of the bottle a little bit? 
I think the potential for an increase in the capital gains rate um, did speed up transactions that were already in the works, or at least got artists thinking that maybe um, now is a good time to sell. But really the increase or potential increase in capital gains rate isn't the driving factor or was not the driving factor. What's really making the industry so compelling right now is the interest rate environment. Mm-hmm. Right. So for the last decade, we've been in a very low interest rate environment and we're looking at likely an increasing rate environment these days. Um, but the reason why the interest rate environment is so vital is that buyers are coming in and are looking for options for yield or for income. And whereas previously they may be able to get that with a more traditional bond-like investment, I think we can all agree that the yields on, you know, cash that we're, we're seeing or even bonds have been virtually nil or nothing. Um, whereas you compare that to a music catalog and you're going in and you're, you're buying the catalog itself and that annuity stream is income producing. So many of the non-traditional buyers or the institutional investors, um, have flooded the market looking for opportunity to, um, seek yield. And do you think it's purely that, or is there some element of just, this is cooler than investing, <laughs> you know, doing the same thing in a bond? Yeah, look, I don't think there's really just one thing that we can point to <laughs> that says that this is the reason why it is happening. But, you know, if you think about the pie and all of the different slices that you can have as to the reason why we're seeing this in the industry, interest rates is a big component of that, right? There's a lot of smaller bites of that pie as well, but it is a big one. So you mentioned simplification of the estate as a mm-hmm. as a big driver here. Um, why why is that? What what's, what gets simplified here? I mean, in terms of you know, if you have an artist, is their catalog during life? I imagine is still being managed largely by their record company. Is that how that generally mm-hmm. works? And then after they die, that ceases to be. Um, well, just in general, if you think about it, heirs often want the money. Right. And it's really hard to plan with a catalog. So there's certain things that you can do in the estate planning world. And I do have to to say that I'm not an attorney. I'm not an accountant, but I do a lot of work with the professional partners for our clients. And a catalog is is a complex asset that is challenging to do planning with, whereas cash or a more liquid asset is much easier to implement, say, gifting strategies or charitable strategies that an artist may be interested in. Interesting. You know, and just another question, and this is probably more my uh, ignorance of the topic than anything, but is there a reason that we're, that you see, you know, catalogs sold as a whole like this and you, you don't tend to see, or at least I don't tend to hear about as part of the general public, sort of in more individual songs? So it's a sort of different, I guess, than, than a visual artist, a fine artist, say, where mm-hmm. you very rarely see someone buy, you know, you, I mean, it couldn't happen, but, you know, Picasso's entire catalog. Um, for many reasons, both expense and just the ridiculous breadth of the work. Um, <laughs> but you would see someone buy, you know, many individual paintings by someone. Um, is, is there something specific about the music industry and the nature of the art that, that makes it this way? Or is it just sort of how these transactions happen to have uh, arisen? Yep. Now, I'm going to answer this question, but it may be off record and I want to listen to it because it's not an area that I spend a lot of time as to that's really how like the buyers look at it, right? I'm looking more at the finances of the whole catalog. But look, when you have somebody like Warner Chappelle Music come in or um, Universal Music Group, many of the big names, they really want to have creative control of what the the artist's music catalog may look like. And so buying an individual song 
I'm going to stumble a little bit here, but it's, it's often more challenging because of the way that it may be held. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say, let's just scratch this question because I have a lot of, um, I have what I think, but I'm not in the music industry managing it. So I don't want somebody to come in and say, well, that's not why we do it. Um, so yeah, we'll scratch that one. So you, know, you mentioned some of the planning complications of these catalogs and, and how many you know moving parts there are, and I mean though we've you know compared them I guess to to bonds or whatever, they're obviously a much more complex situation than that. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how that you know affects planning for them versus you know planning for you know a fixed income asset that would just be a little more normal? Yep. So you know, look, if you have a fixed income bond like asset, it is something that is significantly easier to sell a portion of. It's significantly easier to um, give to charity, simply much easier to give to children as well. And so that is just a, a liquid asset. Now, the complexity of the music catalog has a lot to do with copyright issues, termination rights, um, and how that will be managed, right? You think about a bond and you can just keep it in your portfolio and there's really nothing that you do with it. Um, but with the music catalog, it takes a lot of care in order to promote songs, um, continue to potentially increase the value. And that's something that, you know, not everybody has the ability to do. You know, you mentioned earlier that prior to fairly recently, it was not super popular for people to sell their catalog. It was, you know, not looked at um, as a real option. Is that... Was that largely because of you know, the interest rate concerns that, that you mentioned, or is it something larger in the industry, more like, oh, I don't want to sell out kind of thing amongst musicians? Or, or why do you think it wasn't as popular as it's become? Yeah, exactly that. Look, I think it was more of that the musicians wanted to keep creative control and they didn't want to, uh, to use your word, sell out. Right. But now, as we've seen many of the big names um, certainly take advantage of the current economic environment, as we had discussed the interest rate environment, potential increase for tax rates and the simplification of an overall estate, um, it's certainly acceptable, if not the thing to do, to begin to sell your catalog. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see some of the advantages, both financial and non, of, of having that control of your catalog. I mean, the recent Spotify Neil Young situation, or having control of your music allows you to make, say, a political statement like that, or to come out for a cause uh, and use your music for that force uh, in a way that you know maybe necessarily you wouldn't be able to do, or you'd have to partner with you know your whoever end up buying your catalog to sort of pull that thing off. Yeah, and I think it's also important to look at what the artist will do with the proceeds. You know, if it's something where they want to go out and they need the money or they want to buy a house or they want to buy something with it, I would often say that that is not a great way to start a transaction. Um, mm. You know, if it's really a, a smart and savvy um, financial deal, then you want to look at that portfolio and the investment structure of it um, almost the same way that you would as if you held the catalog, that you have to be a disciplined um, investor, that you need to have a, a appropriate asset allocation of stocks, bonds, alternative investment strategies. And then also, if you are an artist that was depending on that royalty stream, which the significantly large majority are, maybe not the ones that we've discussed so far today, um, but really more of that mainstream, you have to be disciplined to make sure that you're not overspending from now this big pot of money. So planning is a key component in the transaction, right? To make sure that the artist understands how much they can withdraw on an annual basis, um, if they're having income supplemented and continuing to create works of art, um, that's always a significant benefit. Um, 
also with, again, the mainstream artists, they tend to be younger, right? And, you know, again, so far everybody we've talked about has had a, you know, decades worth of success, but the younger artists have a long time that the money needs to continue to support them. Um, so one of the important components of this is to look at what we would consider their core capital. And that's the amount of wealth that an individual will need in order to support a lifetime of spending given, you know, truly difficult inflationary environments and less than expected returns from their portfolio, as well as somebody's longevity, right? And assuming that they'll live a very long life. And, you know, it's a challenge with our athletes as well is to understand that this pot of money may need to last a lifetime. So it's um, a disciplined approach that we like to take with our clients. I think that athlete uh, comparison is a really good one and and something that, you know, I guess could really easily be missed because you're right. We, we have sort of been focusing on, um, you know, generational sort of talents here, what we're talking about, mm-hmm. and the vast majority of artists aren't that. Um, so that they have you know, sort of a vanishingly short career if they have, you know, want it all, and then they have to try to live off of that for, you know, the rest of their days. So it sounds like this is as much an educational hurdle with the client as it is, you know, as like that's a large part of the planning here, having to sort of just sit down to the client and sort of educate them on, on how this has to work. Right. And um, it's important to meet them where they are. These are highly successful, busy individuals. And for the most part, in my experience, they want to learn and take control of their financial future. Um, it just has to happen in a in a pace and at a level that meets their needs. But really, knowledge is power. And the more that they can learn about their portfolio, it empowers them to make the right decisions on their behalf, along with advice from the right professional team. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I mean, how much does, I guess, the whims of taste <laughs> factor into this? I mean, obviously, if you're an artist and you become popular, um, there's not a guarantee you'll always be popular, but you'll have your uh, your catalog of once popular songs, perhaps. And if the winds of change sort of swing your way, then that will become, you know, maybe that'll come back into fashion or you'll be sampled or, you know, any number of things where that song continues to have a long tail. But there's just as many or maybe more where it's just a curiosity sort of lost to time. And uh, it's it's only going to go down in value in a lot of ways from when it's, you know, from the time it was a hit until, you know, the time you die. How much of you know, when you're looking to sell, is that a consideration of just getting, looking at the money and saying, this is just going to be much easier to handle for your long-term interest, having it in dollars and that we can put into other more controllable investments than having it sort of be tied up in this uh, catalog that is a little bit more, let's call it volatile. Yeah. And that's a great point because we've been talking about Bowie this far and it is you know, clear that his songs have stood the test of time and will continue on. Um, for his legacy. But for younger artists, you're right, they might have a popular song, um, see a spike in their royalty stream. But um, for many of them, they'll experience significant decay over time in that royalty stream. And so for them, it's really vitally important to be able to plan appropriately. We always hope for the best, um, but sometimes plan for the worst. And meeting in the middle is where we might often end up. But the idea behind it is that, again, planning is key to all of this. And we don't want somebody who will assume that the fortune that they've had thus far will continue for decades to come. Um, so quite often the answer isn't no to the question of, you know, can I buy this or can I do this? It might be not yet. 
right? Let's see how this plays out over the next couple of years and what the longevity of these songs may look like. And I mean, that, that just sounds like such a hurdle for an advisor to have to cross, right? Because, you know, convincing a client that they're not always going to be successful, that they can't keep doing what they're doing, necess- can't count on keep doing what they're doing necessarily. This is someone who, you know, the mindset to become a rock star sort of requires a level of self-confidence and self-belief that borders on like mental illness in a way where you just have to have <laughs> this insane confidence in yourself to put yourself out there like that and to believe and to go through what these, you know, a lot of these artists go through to, you know, persevere to the point where they can have a hit. And then, so like that, what got them there can ultimately become, it sounds like a bit of a hindrance in their sort of future financial planning after their sort of heyday ends. Yeah. And it's all in the framing for professional advisors. And and that's what I think is how we get through to our clients most is that we are on their side and we think that they are exceptional talent and will continue to have a bright future. But we also have to be realistic and understand that it may not play out that way. And it's not always just because of their talent, right? It's maybe how the industry views their genre of music. Um, and it may be extremely popular now, and it may not be in the next decade or so, right? So there's a lot of outside influences as to the popularity of music. And so it's really standing by their side and helping them make the smart decisions now that will last a lifetime. Well, unfortunately, that's all, about all the time that we have for today's episode. I'd like to thank Stacy Jacobson for being just a really fantastic guest and for sort of holding our hand through a, a topic that I frankly am pretty ignorant about, but I think she did a great job of, of, of laying out the, uh, the basics for us. Thanks so much, Stacy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.